our goals are organizational goals uh, around security, which is about making sure the security, safety, and our, these facilities are functional for overseas personnel. Resilience, um, to really provide that industry-leading resilient facilities that represent our nation and support our personnel in achieving their U.S. foreign policy objectives. And every country has a different objective of what their engagement with that host country is. Um, but also from a resiliency standpoint, there's climate security. And these buildings have to be flexible for because they're 50-year buildings. They have to last. And then stewardship. You know, we have a we've been at it for a while now. We have a number of legacy buildings um, by many of the modern masters, IMP, Brewer, and so forth, in the portfolio that we have responsibility to be stewards of. But that's also that stewardship is also the continued improvement that's really facilitated by a culture of optimizing the processes, supporting technology, and you know, making sure our facilities seem that we're designing facilities that our facilities seems to maintain. Welcome to Best Practice, a show where we interview leaders in the building industry to unpack the tools, strategies, and tactics they use to run great organizations. Today, we're really excited to be joined by Curtis Clay of the Department of State's Bureau of Overseas Building Operations, also known as OBO, for a fireside chat about rethinking the role of the public architect. Curtis Clay is a director of architecture. He's responsible for overseeing a wide range of architectural projects project design functions that support the design, construction, and renovation of diplomatic posts overseas. He has over 20 years of experience in the design and construction industry, including government, commercial, institutional, and private work. Obio is the single real property manager for all of U.S. diplomatic facilities around the world, managing a portfolio of properties in over 290 locations, valued at over $71 billion. So it's a huge budget. OBO's mission is to provide safe, secure, and resilient facilities that represent the U.S. government to the host nation and support its staff in the achievement of U.S. foreign policy objectives. With that, I'm always excited to be joined uh, by Sylvia Lee from our team, and as well as you, uh, Curtis, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me, George. Appreciate it. So I'd like to start off by just understanding a little bit about what your typical work week looks like. Maybe we can talk about it kind of week and what's your month look like, quarter, basically kind of understanding what's the, the kind of rhythms of being a director of architecture um, within OBO. Interesting. So, you know, any given day could be different. It's kind of why I'm really excited about the position. It, it could be solving very micro problems or it could be solving very macro problems. It could be... We have a site that we may want to acquire, but maybe the city wants us to have public space um, as part of the site or give back like a public park. But then we have our security folks who want to make sure that our security requirements are met. So it's about sort of merging all of everybody's issues and making sure everybody's voices are heard and trying to help bring issues to closure pretty much all day, all across the globe. Um, it could be an issue in construction, it could be an acquisition, it could be a conflict with an architect, could be a conflict with an engineer, could be a conflict within OBO amongst our own engineering teams. So really it's solving problems of various scales and various issues all throughout the course of the day. And then there's also 
um, major design reviews that we do where, you know, these projects hit these major milestones and we have full day workshops. Um, there's major presentations, there's senior management presentations. And in that case, I'm standing alongside the architect representing the architecture that we've taken to this point and saying that it's ready to proceed to the next level. You know, I'm, I'm beating them up half the time and then I'm turning around and we're standing together presenting the project together to senior management within uh, OBO. And then there's our industry reviews. I moderate those discussions between outside industry advisors and the AE teams and give the opportunity for external feedback into our program as to how the designs are coming. How are they fitting into what's happening nationally? What are the trends people are seeing? Are they not working holistically from a sustainability standpoint, from a site planning standpoint, from an individual design detail standpoint. So I'm moderating those discussions between industry and peers. And then I'm out talking to folks like you all the time. I'm out trying to gear up, excitement about the program, sitting on, uh, we coordinate through our uh, diplomacy lab with a number of universities that are doing embassy design projects and architectural studios. So it's doing those studio crits, engaging with those universities in terms of how their embassy design works or will not work, giving them a sense of reality from an owner standpoint about the things that I'm seeing. So it's engaging with the public, it's engaging uh, with the AE community, and then it's individual over-the-shoulder reviews, it's approving travel, uh, does this trip need to happen or not? You know, everybody always wants to go to Paris for a week, you know, so not everybody gets to go to Paris for a week. So it's, you know, going through the travel process, going through the trips, going through the scopes of work. Um, and then it's also process improvements. A lot of the work I'm doing is in meeting with the other divisions in the organization, process improvements on how we can get better, just really pushing us to get better every step of the way. So it's a lot. It goes from the administrative to the individual project to the external engagement to the internal engagements. I'm hosting a series of internal engagement seminars on design diplomacy, spreading the gospel of design to the rest of the building as well. So that letting people know that we care about your issues, but we want you to care about our issues as well. I would love to follow that up with um, what is the design philosophy at OBO? What are its goals for the future projects that you have? So there's not a like aesthetic design philosophy when it comes to our projects. Our goals are organizational goals uh, around security, which is about making sure the security, safety, and our, these facilities are functional for our overseas personnel. Resilience, um, to really provide that industry-leading resilient facilities that represent our nation and support our personnel in achieving their U.S. foreign policy objectives. And every country has a different objective of what their engagement with that host country is. But also from a resiliency standpoint, there's climate security. And these buildings have to be flexible for, because they're 50-year buildings, they have to last. And then stewardship, you know, we have a, we've been at it for a while now. We have a number of legacy buildings um, by many of the modern masters, IMP, Brewer, and so forth in the portfolio that we have responsibility to be stewards of. But that's also that stewardship is also the continued improvement that's really facilitated by a culture of optimizing the processes, supporting technology, and you know, making sure our facilities seem that we're designing facilities that our facilities teams can maintain. 
So we have a large rehab portion of our project list in our portfolio where we're rehabbing projects that are already in the portfolio. And the last part of that question was about the future. Goals for future projects? Yeah, so, you know, the design of any embassy really is a, is about the future, right? They're all about, and these projects really challenge architects to think about how you consider designing for the future. How do you consider um, designing for future future global politics? How do you think about designing for natural disasters, for cyber attacks, for shifting economies, for immigration, for security priorities? These are all considerations they must ponder, but are really unable to predict, right? So we're asking our firms to really design these multiple layers of resilient systems, sometimes that are really in a big conflict with each other, in order to accommodate changes that could happen 20 or 50 years down the road. And that's really the, the whole mantra is really about designing that flexibility into these projects for to almost future-proof them in a way, because the last thing we want is to open a building and then it becomes obsolete by the time we open it because it doesn't work for the staff or the people or the current political global impact that that particular location has of engagement with the host country. So really our, our future is really about how do we modernize and innovate in ways that can allow us to be prepared for the future. How do you go about choosing between different architects to work on for your projects? Because do you look at their portfolio? Because that's usually what architects bring to the table, a very strong design portfolio. So how do you make sure that they can handle this security um, requirements and also the future thinking ways for your projects? Right. So we do um, every few years a design indefinite delivery, indefinite quantity contract. And these are we go out to the whole world and we get like hundreds of responses and we narrow it down to 16 firms that we have that work that, are, that make that list. And we do that because then those firms have to go through a security clearance process so that their facilities are secure and so forth. And then once they're in the program, they don't really compete against each other. We really just try to match the right firm with the right project and distribute the work that way. We're the embassy experts at OBO. We're the ones that have been doing this. So really, we have teams of, you know, I was trying to make a count the other day. It's like 35 different groups that are participating in that design process, whether it's physical security, technical security. We have another security engineering branch. We have all of our engineering teams. Um, we have our various tenants of our projects that are participating. And so we're guiding them through the security project. I mean, we have a 6,000 page, you know, design standards that we can throw at people and ask them to follow to meet our standards. But, you know, it's much more nuanced than that. So we're the ones that, I have a team of about 36 architects and landscape architects. We're the ones that are guiding the architects through that process of making sure that all of our requirements are met. Yeah, I think that's that's one of the more like fascinating things about it, about like, it seems like the criteria for selecting an architects is, if I recall correctly from what Angel was describing, it's like they're, it's different, right? It's not necessarily their experience building embassies because you have that in spades. It's more of like, what are they bringing to the table from either their approach, their own design philosophy potentially, or like what, what's the kind of additional thing that they're making a contribution for, uh, you know? And I'm curious about that piece too, is like, how are you evaluating those design teams? Like you've probably have gone through the whole entire library of like certain firms over a certain size, right? Like how many times can you go over that? So I'm curious too about 
how do you identify maybe more emerging firms too? Like, like what's the criteria then at that point? Yeah, so it's not about OBO experience per se as the, the way that we select our architects. We acknowledge that there is our firms that have been working with us that have developed a level of expertise amongst their design leadership and the staff on their firms that are now know our security criteria like the back of their hand. It makes it very easy for them to work for us. But really, it's about a firm's ability to not only solve the problem at hand, right? The ability to solve problems is important. But when you sort of solve a problem beyond the initial problem that's being asked of you, that's what's the kinds of things that are intriguing to us. You know, kind of like the Dark Ingalls steam plant that's also the ski slope, you know? One of the th projects I'll, I won't forget in one of these presentations was someone presented a, a wastewater treatment plant. That was the brief, was of this wastewater treatment plant. But it was so much more. It became a landscape solution. It worked bike paths through. It became a sustainable uh, environment for butterfly gardens. It, it, be, you know, it became so much more than just a wastewater treatment plant. And that's beyond what was asked of the architect. And most of our projects are asked to do the same thing, right? We provide a program, we have our security requirements, we have the brief, right? What's not explicitly laid out, because you don't know in every country is different, is how do you mitigate the lack of stormwater management infrastructure that's right adjacent to the site, right? So it's about then designing a park that can have you know, water retention features in it as a way to mitigate the stormwater management so that the neighbor down the street doesn't flood, right? That's that extra step in the design process that we don't explicitly state that our projects have the ability to do, not only because it's, that's that extra level of design thinking that we like, but it's also makes us better neighbors. It makes us better, our diplomats, better diplomats. It's, well, hey, we should take advantage of you know, a certain type of wind that they have here. So we can put it in solid windmill, you know, to, it may not really generate a ton of power, but it's that diplomatic representational aspect of the project. It's when we were in Nogales, Mexico, we, if you ride around Nogales, right across the border from Arizona, it's all these little shade structures, because it's hot, it's hot. It's the Sonoran Desert and it's hot. And everyone's on the side of the road selling, you know, all kinds of things. But they use the, the, this um, particular cactus plant, an Ocotillo cactus plant, the strands of that plant to build the roofs out of. And so when we went to go and design that project um, with INEAD, they used a, a modern abstraction of that Ocotillo cactus plant roof as, and incorporated as a design motif in the parts of the project. When we walked the local authorities through this, they immediately sort of the nuance and recognized that it was a, you know, a recognition of something that's near and dear to them and very familiar to them. They were just so touched. The guy gave an embroidered Mexican flag to the consul general at the end of the design presentation because, you know, we arrived and we were thinking about what was important to that local community as part of, we weren't just coming in and going to do something that was really big. So it's it's the ability to think and solve problems. It's projects, displaying projects that have a complexity of program, you know, that are doing this kind of multifunctional thing that aren't just sort of 
solving the programmatic challenges, but are becoming something else for the community or something else for the students if it's an education facility or something else is, you know, providing for collaboration if it's a lab. Um, so it's not all just OBO experience that intrigue because, you know, we understand there's a, a small percentage of AEs that have done our work. So it's about how you find a sense of shared community because these are diplomats that are living overseas and they're some, sometimes they're living and working on the same campus. Um, so how do you build community? I mean, there are things like this that we look for beyond just the OBO experience that really tell us about an architect's approach to the work. Are they thinkers? Are they, and how do they solve problems is really key for us. That's such a beautiful story. Thank you for sharing. Since you have so many projects across the world, how do you find this context in every different location that you work in? Is there like a research project? Do you do extensive like interviews or like do you look towards people with similar experiences? Like, and then I'm also curious if among all those different projects, are there any similarities you find regardless of the location? Yeah, we, as part of maybe when we're acquiring a site and we're going there, it's, you know, in some ways it's like any other architectural project, right? It starts with the dirt. You can go and bring the civil engineers out. We're testing the dirt and the designers are rubbing their hands through the dirt. You're looking at the context. Um, but, you know, when you're spending time doing that research, we spend about a week or so, sometimes more on the ground at the outset of a process. And you are, you're, you're interviewing local staff, engaging with local architects. Usually every American architect has a local architect on their team. That's sort of bridging that gap in some ways between the cultural aspects. And yeah, you're spending time on the ground and you're looking for those cues. And, you know, it's tricky because in some countries, right, there's a maybe a, a colonial history where the Dutch have, or I'm not calling out the Dutch, I have nothing against Dutch, but, you know, some foreign power has, you know, their, their architecture is what dominates maybe, right? So now do you... Do you draw cues from, from that? Do you draw cues from what's local? These are these tough and the, the most challenging part of the job is, is maybe not the most challenging, but for me, the most fun part of the job is asking these nuanced questions about what part of the local context is important for us to celebrate, to honor without culturally appropriating in a way that is offensive. And in some cases, right? Like one project in Niamey, they said, well, it looks so like our country. It looks like our, one of our buildings. And we, we thought that was a compliment. But they were like, no, we wanted like an American looking building. So in some cases, you think that you're coming to try to do some really great cultural engagement. You work really hard to be contextual. And then they're like, well, we wanted, you know, the glass skyscraper that we see in America from in our country. So it's these really difficult challenges and it's different everywhere. And but most of the time, it's it's climactic, it's contextual. You know, we're working in everywhere from Doha, where it's 130 degrees, to Ulaanbaatar, where it's minus 50 degrees, you know, six months out of the year. So there's certain ways of building in those parts of the world that obviously make sense to build in that certain way. So in that sense, they're the same in that they are all recognizing the local context and and weather climactic context that they're in, in some ways, they're a lot the same. I and mean, we have standard elements of our buildings that are in every building and they're 
they're very standardized buildings in, in many ways that most people probably don't see from the outside, but the buildings are quite prescriptive in how they need to go together from a adjacency standpoint, a spatial standpoint. At the end of the day, right there, many of them are providing visa services. Many of them are places for ambassadors to host diplomatic events and people from the host country for lectures and high delegation meetings. And so they're all serving the same purpose. And so many of the spaces are the same, but culturally it changes sometimes from location to location. And that part to me is the most fascinating piece of it all. It's like the, the cultural perception or reception of, of a project. And it just, for me, it's, it just feels like you have so many different stakeholders at so many different levels and you operate at such a, at a time horizon that's much longer than even like our own, like no matter what kind of state the government of the U.S. is in, like who is in leadership, OBO operates at a much longer time horizon, has to think really strategically and operate sort of right in the best interest of the U.S. government. And at the same time, I think about like, well, there's a lot of stakeholders internally, even within the U.S. government. And then there's the stakeholders within host nations. And when you're getting that comment of like, oh, we wanted an American, is it, is it, are you talking about like, is it the press at that level? Is it at that level that the press is sort of like, you, you get rumblings that the press is critiquing the project in some sense, or, or is it coming from other diplomats too? Like basically almost like, who are you trying to, you know, at what level too, from like the host nation's government, are you trying to not, not appease, but essentially, like, you know, get, get a stamp on or like get some sort of like acceptance, or maybe that doesn't really matter. I'm, I'm curious on that front. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, these are American buildings on American soil. I mean, we're the ones that we have to, we're making a lot of these, but we are engaging with those country. And in some places, you know, the it's different in different locations. Some places are very happy because there's this huge economic and environmental and social impact by bringing a construction project of that volume to the city. And they're like, you know, come on, build it. We didn't, you know, not really engage in what you're building, but in other places, I was in uh, Slovakia a month or so ago, and the mayor of the city we're trying to build it is an architect. So he has a very keen interest in what architect we're bringing to the table. What is it going to look at? Look like he's been deeply engaged in an urban planning process for his city that he's trying to, you know, implement. And so he's not sure whether a U.S. embassy in your location we want to go is going to work for his urban vision for the city. So it's very different there and. You know, somewhere, you know, I mentioned Paris and France. Sometimes it's neighborhood groups that are the most powerful entities that you have to deal with in certain neighborhoods and certain parts of the country. So it is different in different locations. And that's kind of what makes it exciting is that it's always different from a who do you need to inform? You know, there's this, you know, how like a local vernacular might inform the design in some cases is, is a very economic decision. Because you're using economic local materials, local construction means and methods that are very familiar to a host country. So it's a very smart, economic, performative decision for the kinds of design decisions you're making. Sometimes there is a cultural significance, you know, about the kinds of vegetation you're using. It runs the gamut, really. With the amount of projects you have going on and the fact that you occupy them for such a long time afterwards... Is this like a way that you can really test out a lot of different things? Like what you learn from one project, can you immediately like take that and put that into another project or test out things with sustainability or like how quickly can you innovate with like the array of projects you have? 
Yeah, the, the government is not the leaders of innovation, really. I mean, we have a pretty robust lessons learned program, but you're talking by the time you started a design and completed a project, it could be five or six years. By the time you do the lessons learned activity, it's going into the design standards maybe the following year to be implemented on a project that may be awarded that year or another project that may be completed six or seven years after that. So, and it's very difficult due to, we actually are, you know, our charter is the quick, you know, construction of safe and secure facilities abroad to get our diplomats in as safe as facilities possible. So we're not in the innovation business per se, but we do work with industry partners and we find ways to um, do that maybe outside of a project timeline and then find ways to incorporate those things. There's all kinds of standards committees, security committees. You know, we're looking at mass timber. We're looking at ram earth. We're looking at different ways to deal with a security, secure but open perimeter. We're looking at different ways to meet sustainability goals. We're looking at different ways to offset carbon. But those are studies that are happening sort of concurrent with projects. And then really we, you know, the design standards are a formal legal document. So they, they have to be implemented there. We're not just implementing new ideas. We can't just pursue lead platinum for the sake of pursuing lead platinum, right? Like we are stewards of taxpayer dollars and the decisions have to be purposeful and meaningful in terms of what we're spending our money on. Maybe to talk a little bit differently about innovation in a different way mm-hmm. that's maybe more iterative. We talked a little bit before the conversation about sort of like what, what's changed with the pandemic for OBO. And also, and we talked about this idea of like the weekly meeting, right? The staff meeting as one potential like vehicle for feedback. Can you uh, kind of walk us through like how, how has the pandemic kind of changed maybe for the better in some ways, how teams come together and have conversations? Sure. So internally, you know, we started having weekly staff meeting, virtual staff meetings as soon as we all kind of went virtual. Um, as we just, to, you know, start off as a touching base. How's everybody doing? Is everybody okay? Is your family okay? Is your mama okay? You know, and then, you know, we maintain those weekly meetings to start dealing with project issues. And so we try to solve collectively. How will we do a virtual site visit? How will we keep these projects moving forward when we can't actually physically go to site and do what we need to do? So it took some flexibility. It was like, well, we're going to have to do Instead of maybe one week of on the ground interviews where you just bump conference room to conference room to conference room and talk to people, you know, we might have to schedule because we're working in different time zones, you know, meetings from 11 p.m. to five o'clock in the morning. And then you will be off the next day and we'll schedule those with our architects across two weeks. And we'll still do the same discussions and interviews, but it took a lot more prep. What is this conversation about? Why am I having this conversation? What can you help to prepare for this conversation? And some architects, you know, were just starting with us because we had just awarded the new IDIQ. And so they had never traveled with us or never seen an embassy in person before. So working through those issues together, how to perform our jobs virtually, those are the kinds of conversations we were having internally. And then externally, you know, it was how can we do these workshops with an architect where we're so used to you know, an architect, a mechanical engineer, the electrical engineer, and everyone's sort of at the table and we're sketching over the top of each other and we're we're looking at what people are doing and well, this works and here's why this doesn't work from a security standpoint. And this guy can chime in. That was much more difficult process for us to transition to virtual. So we 
we slowly, you know, learn how to incorporate online sketching tools, you know, giving other people, you know, the, the basically the technology to be able to participate in these virtual online design workshops. So that was sort of the next level was training people how to use the tools and the technology and buying the technology for staff to use it from home to participate in a virtual design workshop and then getting the architect to understand that this is maybe goes a little slower than what we needed. So maybe the project manager understood we add a little more time to your schedule because now the design process is prolonging a bit. And for a long time, you know, a lot of firms could not get into their office space to perform the classified portions of our projects. So we couldn't have certain conversations about the work virtually that we could in person in, you know, certain spaces that were are allocated for those kind of rooms. So how do you proceed with a design project when you're really only able to design a certain portion of the project and you were not able to even talk about it or design another portion of the project? So these are all some of the challenges that we try to solve and how to talk about this stuff in a way that it could be talked about virtually. We're all new to these new things that we tools that we discussed how to do in the virtual environment. But it's I think we've got there and now we're starting to do some in-person events and workshops one on again. And I had a team just tell me they we got more done in the two days at the Arctic's office than we've got done in the last month and a half trying to do it all virtually. So hopefully we can get more engaged in these in-person workshops. Yeah, it seems it seems like it's a kind of like it is understanding when is it useful versus not. It's just another layer of like when is it useful to push forward a virtual meeting versus an in-person under, yeah. Almost having like a framework for this type of meeting is great, can be done virtually, but you can't do this. And like that helps to make decisions quicker for everybody. And then travel. Not everyone's really comfortable traveling yet. So you have to really just respect where people are in terms of their personal risk level when it comes to COVID and how they will choose to engage the public. And, you know, they're, it's, it's different for different people. So you have to accommodate that as part of the discussion as well. Yeah, it sounds great because sometimes like, it's just the tools that we use. They shouldn't dictate like what the design is or how you work. They should just enable you to do the work that you want to do. So it sounds like you've been very thoughtful about like what you should take from what you had to change during COVID, like your weekly meetings. Maybe it was a good to like touch in with more people and be more communicative. I think a lot of people had to learn how to do that during the pandemic. Did you get to know your like, staff a little better or your clients in any way during the pandemic because of like the ways you had to adapt together during? I think so. You know, before we had these beautiful virtual backgrounds, it was, you know, you you had this view into people's personal homes and in some ways were not so good for some people, but <laughs> you know, you had these views into people's personal lives and kids interrupting and, and sort of that sort of broke down some of those professional the rigidness that I think comes from these professional conversations sometimes when you bring that humanity into those professional conversations. I think it did kind of, and now even with the backgrounds, you see people in person, people are still saying, oh, how's your child? How's your son? Uh, he grew so much just in the last two years. We've seen him virtually, you know, like you, you see how people now have brought that sort of personal element from their home, working from home into their private sector life into the public sector lights in a way that they really hadn't previously I think. is there anything that you've that you've learned now working at the state department 
whether it's like ways of working, means of working that, and, and alongside these, uh, the other architects that you work with, that could be adopted by, let's say, firms that might not be working with OBO, but there's something about the ways in which you've been working that could be applicable? You know, it's interesting because different firms work differently. And we have a process that's pretty rigid in terms of how these firms must follow it. But even within that process, you see firms that, you know, there's some firms that are led very much so by the design principle in terms of how the, the approach work and design principles make a lot of decisions. And then other firms are, are more integrated in terms of how the technical architect and the design team is working together. I don't think there's one right way to do it. I think that there is, you know, they all sort of seem to have this commitment to, to craft, um, the craft of architecture and what it means to do a window seal that's, you know, projected versus, you know, recessed. And what does that do to some, you know, the sustainability aspects or, you know, I think there's a dedication to craft and there's just a lot of thinking that happens. And we do a lot of design builds, so it's, you're not going to solve all these problems during the design phase, but, you know, we're going to try to solve most of the problems. That's what our goal is. We're not going to solve all of them, you know, but we're going to try to solve most of them. And the thing that's, you know, consistent, which we tell people is that, you know, and Angel's, I think, mentioned this and one of the lines I like from Arnold Blackwell is proportion and scale are free. So it doesn't matter how you run your firm or how you operate it, but the design basic principles of architecture in terms of how you build proportions in a project or the scale and how these campus plans work with one another, the buildings on the campus, that part of it is easy. You can get a big name architect or a small name architect to, they're all going to have to try to solve the same problems. It's not about the name or the firm structure in some ways. It's, you know, in some ways, how they work with us as a customer, how do they build those relationships with us to be able to persevere through the myriad of political and programmatic challenges that we throw at them as a client, which is almost most important. And you speak so thoughtfully about like what everything architecture, the potential there is, and also how thoughtful you have to be about all the decisions you make. Are there any experiences that you take from outside of your career that you, that influence your day-to-day thinking and decisions? You know, I, I used to bartend. I used to DJ when I was, you know, growing up through college. But so there's this idea of bringing things that maybe are not necessarily thought of to go together, whether that's, you know, different liquids or different genres of music or um, food. They all kind of, you know, to create something new that somehow is harmonious and balanced and goes together is just, I think, something that I've just been interested in personally is how do you find these things that maybe seem like disparate elements, but when you put them together, are able to be, come together sort of a harmonious whole. And a good party too. (laughs) (laughs) It was a good party as well, yeah. We do have some questions uh, lined up that would be great to ask you. So uh, we'll start here. Um, Thank you for sharing this question, Rona. So uh, Rona says, thank you for sharing your thoughts, experience, and vision. The State Department has a unique and highly visible program. However, there are countless other roles for architects at all levels in the federal, state, and local government, in the military, in schools, and in related civic institutions as appointees, executives, managers, in the civil service, and as pro bono civic architects. 
as a fellow government architect, I was interested in how you would encourage more of our diverse graduates and architects at all points in their work lives to consider moving into government roles, which have the potential for substantive, meaningful, and lucrative careers as the owner, along with a direct voice in decision-making for planning and buildings. Yeah, that's a great question. Yeah, I love it. Yeah, it, it's your school boards that are making, you know, design decisions. It's the your economic development council that's thinking, you know, it's, it's the money in many ways, right? But it's also, it's your peer review board. It's the code enforcement board. Um, I, I sat on the uh, codes board for the D.C. government, so totally volunteer, but you're shaping the codes, the building codes, architects. And it's something that you do in the you need to get support from your office to do it. But actually shaping the future building codes, um, the energy building codes, what's doable? I mean, that is those. This, these decisions are being done by architects at every level of government, and it, it is in the military, Department of Defense, GSA, architect of the Capitol, Smithsonian. People don't know. I mean, the Smithsonian does this in many ways some of the same things that we do. And I have a, a friend of mine who was Smithsonian works on only on the zoo, the National Zoo, and it's an architect that sort of guiding the process of ensuring that these exhibits and the accessibility that is maintained and these ramp slopes. And I mean, these are all architects that are in roles of public service that are giving back in a myriad of different ways. So, I mean, if you're a young student, I do think it's still important to learn how to put buildings together. I think it's important to learn how to do construction documents and put together a BIM model and know how to coordinate mechanical, structural, electrical drawings in a set. And I think that makes you a better critique of architecture when you have that foundation, but definitely consider all, some clients have, client, some developers have architects as part of their development management team. Starbucks, Disney has, has architects. I mean, it just goes beyond, I mean, those aren't necessarily all public architects, but there is a, a, a large array of opportunities that are available to architects on the public sector side. Thank you for that. Yeah, I think I think there's also the the other aspect of this too is I think you brought it up about how much influence do these positions have in the sense that they are helping to craft long term policy potentially or the direction of something. Like OBO is a good example of this. It's like you know how many other departments have you know, this type of budget, but also this type of scope and thinking about design as a representation of the U.S. government at this level is like, it's powerful. I mean, 50 year lifetime, right? To represent the kind of ambitions and aspirations of a country is meaningful. (laughs) And it's powerful. I mean, you have to think about it. I mean, most of the visitors to these places are local and it's it's scary sometimes, you know, whether or not they're going to get this visa and you're sort of creating this space that is comfortable for them to go through this process of trying to get a visa to come to the country or for another ambassador to come visit your ambassador. You want to make that representational path from the front door all the way to the ambassador's office meaningful in terms of, you know, showing the the power and importance of the United States government. So there's all these nuanced ways of approaching and all for all the different types of people that visit the building and the people that work there as well. Because something like 60, 70% of the people that local work and most embassies are local staff. So, you know, the U.S. government folks, they rotate out on a regular basis. But the people that are there for the long term are people that live live in those communities. So, do you want to ask the next question? Yeah, sure. Thanks. From your former student at Howard, Professor Clay, could you please share with us what is the most challenging versus enjoyable in your position? 
second part of that, understanding that security is the most important factor for embassies. How do you manage the AE team to balance between aesthetic versus functional? You know, the most challenging part of the job, I think, every day is just trying to push the program forward in a way that, you know, balances all these items. You know, architecture is one of many divisions within OBO. And we're not always the most important, right? I'd argue to say we're not the most important. You know, the ability to construct these and maintain them over 50 years is guides the decision-making. This goes to the second part of the question. When it comes to solving the security issues, when it comes to the aesthetic issues, like we don't, we don't ever say I like or I don't like something. Like that's not our job. It's does this perform? Is it functional? Is it logical? Is it, are these elements of this landscape performative? What are these sunshades doing? Are they, are they, do they add value to the uh, long-term design and approach of this project? So if we argue and focus on aesthetics, we lose that game all day. That's not something that we even try to discuss. But if you talk to things about, is this space monumental enough? Is it monumental in terms of what we look for from a representational standpoint? Does this meet our security needs fully and the representational aspects from the street in terms of our ability to desire to appear like we're an open nation? So there's ways to talk about aesthetics without talking about aesthetics that we've, I think, learned over the years. But it's really not about commenting and solving on this the aesthetic issues directly. That's not because the, it's not the most important thing within the building. There's you know, the telecom room guys, the telecom room's most important thing, the telecom engineers that his telecom rooms are stacked, right? So you have to solve his problem. The mechanical engineer wants to make sure that his duct runs or the data guy wants to make sure that the data runs are not exceeding the code required minimums with the amount of turns to get to where he has his, his data room. You know, the guy who's repairing cell phones wants to make sure he's not in the basement where he can't get a cell phone signal. So if you can solve all of these other people's problems, then the architecture can be whatever it really kind of needs to be and wants to be. But it's not until you solve the constructability and the maintainability and the telecom guy and the interior design flexibility standards. And, you know, until you've solved all of these, everybody else's issues, then the architecture, no one's going to ask you what it will, why is the architecture like, you know, because everyone's problems and issues on the project have been solved. And then we can solve the architectural issues. That's a great answer. Uh, it's awesome. I mean, we also you also have a lot of fans apparently in the audience uh, from, uh, I guess, uh, Howard potentially, because uh, a lot of people are saying uh, thanks for your perspective, Professor Clay. So uh, we have another question from Catherine. When you were working on the consultant architecture side for OBO, what was the project you worked on for OBO that first challenged you in a different way than you had seen in your projects before, potentially with private clients? Yeah, um, when I was at Sorgan Associates, I worked on Kabul, which was obviously one of the most challenging um, locations. So obviously the embassy in Kabul um, worked on projects in Kathmandu, Nepal, addressing these sort of extreme environmental issues I had faced doing projects in the United States. So those were the two that really were like, oh, wow, there's a different way of, you have to approach the work differently. You're thinking about Kabul, obviously, from a heavy security standpoint. Nepal from a completely environmental. And then there's also issues like logistics and 
what materials are available or can you ship to Nepal in a meaningful way to do a project there? Like you, you're thinking beyond just sort of the catalogs in the library to design the building. You have to really think about and do research and think about the culture in, in a way that you wouldn't normally have to do on a strictly domestic project. But, you know, there's some element of that domestically, but just it was to a higher level. We have a few minutes left. Um, we do have one more question, but before that, do you want to share some of the work that you, you have in store? Okay, so quickly, and there's not nearly enough time. I have a whole, I can do two hours on just this stuff. Consul General in Curacao, this is near UNESCO World Heritage Site. So we're drawing on the inspiration of the very colorful buildings of Curacao that are located nearby. So it's trying to do something that's very modern and contextual while still meeting our security requirements. Doha Cutter, like I mentioned, 130 degrees. So having this shade at the compound entrance facilities and really understanding local sensibilities of shade and space. And there's this metallic perforated plate that sort of references some uh, better intent imagery um, at these security points. Hanoi, Vietnam. Here we have a nice stone base. It's a very highly corrosive environment. This sits facing a park. There's some rice paddy references in the landscape to draw on. Uh, Juba, South Sudan, uh, a completely residential, you know, enclosed residential and embassy compound. Uh, this is a 19-acre compound with there's no power, no water infrastructure, no stormwater management, no wastewater infrastructure. So really, how do you sort of be, build a self-sustaining facility in South Sudan, which is a new democracy uh, that we are trying to support? Kinshasa, Democratic Republic of Congo, nine months of rain here a year. Um, we're also building new roads and stormwater infrastructure all around our site. This is one of the most evacuated posts in the world. Uh, so we also have housing on our site. Um, so we wanted to really design a place where you can both work and play. Uh, Lagos, one of the mega cities we're building in around the world. Um, this is built in Eco-Atlantic, if you look that up, it's a newly reclaimed land out in the desert of Lagos. And this is drawing on some African textile pattern references. Um, there's a huge consular window activity here. It's located on Canal. It's actually, the traffic's so bad that the staff commutes by boat to work because it takes them hours to get back and forth to their, to their homes. Here you can see in the long way a performative dynamic sunscreen um, there's a tributary running through the site adjacent to the Longway River. Huge American center in the Longway, too, because people come to the embassy just to use our internet. So it has a large number of people, the visitors that come to just access the internet all day. Uh, this is uh, on the board. We're just is about just went out on the street to bid our UMC RIA by Morphosis. Uh, this is really about creating a place of community on our compound. Obviously, there's no alcohol in Saudi Arabia. So creating these large community spaces on site while taking into account the climate is something that uh, is really important to us. U.S. Embassy in Ankara. This is really starting with some traditional Turkish architecture ideas where all the parts are contained within a single enclosure, more so than some of our other projects that have a series of disparate buildings. Uh, this is under construction, hopefully finishing up soon. This project is the U.S. Embassy, and it's interesting that <laughs> You know, the address on this one in Asuncion is 1776. So this one's important. And it's also uh, built on an existing site with a culturally significant landscape. Uh, USMC in Beirut, Lebanon, huge 43-acre site, 
This is over a million square feet across 19 buildings. Actually, the part you're just seeing here is only just the housing portion of the project, actually, because the embassy is actually at the top. But this one's under construction right now. And this is going to be a net zero energy chancery with a net zero water campus. So one of our first projects that got a lead for neighborhood development certification. Some construction fees there. A Casablanca perforated stainless steel panels. These are performative based on the marine environment. So again, as I talked about, the architecture is drawn from solving the specific performative technical needs of the site in this particular location. But then behind, you know, is a lot of standardized elements. Thailand, a series of pavilions really designed for the climate, with the center pavilion really being the social heart of the building. I know I'm going fast, but uh, I just want to give a quick overview. Uh, Colombo, Sri Lanka, a wonderful site just right on the ocean. This building is adjacent right to our existing compound. Uh, this one's almost done. Um, and there's train tracks as you see in the foreground here. Obviously that raises security concern, had to be dealt with. There's flooding on the other site, on the other side of the site. So these are these kind of complex issues that we're trying to solve on these projects. Tahran, Saudi Arabia with SOM, uh, really this contemporary expression of an ancient Middle East technology to bring cooling breezes down into these courtyard spaces which is sort of a cultural references and these, these wind catchers, which are, and also the shade with all the palm trees. The palm trees aren't quite grown in like we want, as you can see there, but uh, they're coming in. Combined with the project in Riyadh, I showed you with Morphosis, we're doing about a billion dollars worth of work in Saudi Arabia. And we just celebrated a 75 year history of working collaboratively with their government. Uh, Consul General in Erbil, EYP. This is again, self-sustaining campus with a power plant. You know, given the political challenges in Iraq, this could potentially be an, an embassy. So we were thinking about that future resiliency, depending on how the global political aspects sort of play themselves out for the future. Uh, Guadalajara, uh, this is one of the largest consular operations around the world. Really, it's this entire second floor. And we talk about sort of accommodating cultural aspects in the projects, like in Mexico, people bring their entire family when they're going to get a visa. So you see this courtyard space. Um, in the foreground really is that place in a secure area for those family members to congregate and gather without really coming all the way onto our campus because we can't bring everybody's families in for the visa appointment. So we had to create a space just understanding how these the people in every location operate. Guatemala City, these are these glass fins. Um, you know, obviously a challenge to our diplomatic security folks, but we overcome. Um, this is a really, we had to add Talk about flexibility, another 150 desks into this facility after construction had already started. So luckily, when we had designed the space to accommodate this level of um, extreme flexibility to be able to add that many desks. Hermosillo, this sunscreen plant canopy that you see here is a performative aspect, but also creates these additional spaces underneath it for public space to gather and other gathering spaces for the actual community. So while the building itself may not be large, um, you also have this large uh, sunscreen element that becomes the roof shading structure for a series of outdoor elements, which are, again, not necessarily part of the program, but become very functional uh, gathering spaces outside. Kampala, Uganda, you can see where we're drawing from some local textile cultures for the sunscreen here. This is really important, a partnering environment where the project team is really meeting on a quarterly basis and really meeting these project milestones at a really challenging place uh, to construct. This was designed by BNIM out of Kansas City. There's just a little bit of that under construction and the mock-up there on the right. 
Merida, Mexico. I know I'm out of time. Nairobi, I'm in construction. Nassau, the Bahamas, the sunscreen being a nod to local Caribbean shutters vernacular. Um, and this large opening that you see here really overlooks the cruise ships that are maybe coming in and out. So this acknowledgement of the economy uh, there and how our embassy plays a role in fostering that dialogue between the economy that's happening with cruise ships and our building while still uh, having an architectural connection to the local community. This is when I talked about in Nogales, Mexico. You see those Ocotillo cactus elements there and on the left, and we incorporate that item into the sunshade. So yeah, that's just a few. Christina, I mean, I could keep going, but you know, it doesn't stop. There's, we have a lot under construction right now, a lot in design. So thank you. I know I went over a little bit, but no, I appreciate Sorry about the audio problems as well. No, this is amazing. I, I really appreciate um, walking us through all those different projects. I'm sure everyone here that's here with us as well. I mean, they're, they're beautiful. A lot of them are just like the craft I, that you mentioned earlier is very apparent in like the kind of detailing and everything else of the projects. It's, it's, it's really great. And it's, a, it's an honor to be able to see them. Um, I guess the last question we always like to ask here in this in this uh, show is uh, what is the and kind of step us back away to more human uh, element is, you know, what's the nicest thing anyone's ever done for you? Wow, this is a tough one. And I saw you ask. I should have been prepared for this because you asked people this on some of your other episodes. You know, I'm going to just bring it back to my mother. I'm going to thank my mother. The nicest thing anyone's ever done for me is my mother given birth to me because I'm sure that was not a joyful experience. And she always reminds me all the time how much of a terror I was. So <laughs> nice thing anyone's ever done with my mother giving birth to me. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much, Curtis, for walking us through your role, everything that you've been able to accomplish in your tenure so far at the State Department. And yeah, really, really thank you so much for, for taking the time to share that with us. And Sylvia, as always, thank you so much. And to our guests here as well, those who were able to join us today, thank you all very, very much. Thanks so much, Curtis. Thank you so much for your opportunity. I really enjoyed it. Yeah. All right, everyone. Take care. Have a good one. Cheers. Thank you for your time. Hey, it's Chris from Monograph. Thank you so much for joining us here. At Monograph, we're building the number one practice operations platform for small to mid-sized architecture firms. More than 200 practices are using Monograph today to run the business side of architecture. You can start a free trial today or watch a live demo with our CEO, Robert Ewan. Get started at monograph.com. That's monograph.com. Talk to you soon.